Hey, Johnny, is your marriage a happy one? Yep, we've been married several years, and we've never had a fight in our house. Hey, that's wonderful. Yeah, we always go out in the yard. <laughs> hey, Johnny, I hear you play the trombone. Yeah, but lately I've been letting it slide. Why did you leave me here all alone? I searched the world over and I thought I found true love. You made another and you were gone. Day's almost over, so the guys need this location to deliver monster worms. Oh, Oop, got, got one, Andy. She ain't gonna complain about these. No, look at that. Another one. Another one? Nice one. Oh, I got another one, too. Look at the size of these, Andy. These are the perfect worm, dude. Sure enough, they're really nice sized worms. They're exactly the type of worm that we're looking for. This is awesome, Andy. I'm snapping them. Look at that. It's a foot long. Right now, we're on the world. I think the real enjoyment comes from just doing it. certainly don't make songs like they used to. Hi, I'm Rob Schulte, and welcome to Doing It with Mike Sachs. And Rob, me, the producer of the show. You might know Mike Sachs from his books Poking a Dead Frog and Here's the Kicker, or more recently Mike's release of the classic novelization of Stinker Let's Loose. First, let's address today's episode. Mike chats with the one and only Jack Handy and Ian Goldstein and myself were able to interview Danny McBride and Walton Goggins of HBO's Vice Principals. So stay tuned. I also wanted to say that like every podcast in existence, we're looking to get some more ears on the show. So do me a favor and if you would rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to it on your friends' phones, that's all I ask for. Next up, Mike interviews Jack Handy. You may remember him from such SNL shorts as Deep Thoughts or Fuzzy Memories. Jack has a new book that you can buy on deepthoughtsbyjackhandy.com. And Mike and Jack spoke by phone. You knew uh, Steve Martin years ago, going back to New Mexico, right? Yeah, we. Uh, I was a newspaper reporter. I'm back here in Santa Fe. I was a newspaper reporter in the early 70s here in, in Santa Fe and um, lived up on Upper Canyon Road and lived on one side of a 150-year-old adobe house that had been cut in half. And Steve Martin moved in on the other side. Um, he was sort of a going around the country doing his stand-up act. And, you know, he'd come over and play the banjo and... And we got to know each other, and then he kind of took off, and I said, hey, my neighbor, uh, maybe I can write maybe I can write some jokes for him. And I got in touch with him, and sure enough, started writing some jokes for him. So that was my proverbial Hollywood break. So you, I mean, do you think you would have gotten into comedy or had stayed in journalism if you had not met Steve Martin? 
I think I always sort of lean toward comedy. I, I mean, I wrote a humor column in high school and college, and and even when I was a journalist, uh, you know, I wasn't the greatest reporter in the world. I, I mainly did Charles Corral kind of feature stories, uh, but I always sort of leaned toward the humor column and always was sort of looking for something in that that field, whether it was a syndicated humor column or writing out in Hollywood or whatever. Do you? What did you make of Steve? I mean, so this was at the very beginning of his stand-up when he was transferring over, segueing from becoming a writer to going into the stand-up field. Yeah, he had. I think he had left uh, Hollywood. Uh, I guess he liked Santa Fe and was touring. You know, doing the Playboy clubs and stuff, doing his stand-up act. And then shortly after that, he got his break. I guess I started seeing him on on the Tonight Show. So I said, "Hey, maybe I should uh, hitch my wagon to that star." So I wrote him, and and he called me out to Hollywood to write on his first TV special, which was fortuitous. That was comedy, isn't pretty. Uh, I think it was a wild and crazy guy was the first one. Uh, and then he did, yeah, comedy is not pretty. And and then I think he did a couple other ones. So that's an amazing leap that you made going from uh, Santa Fe to then writing for Steve Martin. Yeah, it was, uh, it goes to show you, you know, I mean, I, I, I believe in hard work and persistence and that'll eventually get you there. But, but luck is a big factor. That's really true, but then again, if you weren't talented, he wouldn't have called you up to Hollywood. Yeah, that's. Um, that, I hope that's true. Uh, you know, but just running into him as my next door neighbor is sort of, sort of a strange coincidence. But and we have we have pretty similar senses of humor. I he even told me once when I was writing, I think on one of his specials, he said, ah, "Believe it or not, I've written this joke." <laughs> so so we have a, a pretty close. Eye on things. Yeah, it's a very specific tone. What was the joke or sketches that you remember getting on the first and second TV specials? The big one was uh, Turtle Rodeo, where <laughs> they, actually, they actually went down. They, they actually went down to San, the San Diego Zoo, and, and the San, probably wouldn't happen nowadays. But San Diego Zoo said, "Yeah, you, we won't let you have any of our turtles, but if you come down here." You can film it. And so they went down, the whole cast, the crew and everything went down there and filmed that. Did you have any jokes on his albums? Yeah, I had, uh, he, he hired us, uh, my friend and I, Carmen Finester, to write some jokes for his album. Is this the one, I believe that sex is one of the most beautiful... You got it, you got it. Sex is one of the most beautiful things in the world uh, that somebody can buy or some a person can pay for. I forgot what the joke. You probably know it better than I do. Yeah, I think it's, I believe that sex is one of the most beautiful, natural, and wholesome things that money can buy. There you go. Wow. Good for you. <laughs> so, uh, are you still in touch? Uh, not really. Actually, he, he, he emailed me the other day. He wanted, I guess he's doing a stand-up act with Martin Short. And um, he wanted me to write some jokes, and I just told him, sorry, I'm, I'm too lazy. You know? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, I just, I just said, uh, I said, my day now is like uh, watering the grass, taking a nap, and drinking beer mainly. So <laughs> You can't squeeze a few jokes in that day? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I just, Jack. I know. It's, yeah. what, what was his response when you said no? He said, so 
Oh, you're in. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I love that joke. Not even listening. Yeah. Did he help you get on the new show? Uh, I think he did. Yes. So tell yes, me how that did. came about. That's a very interesting show. Lauren Michaels produced. It had an amazing group of writers on that show. James Downey, Al Franken, Tom Davis, Buck Henry, Max Pross, George Myers. Yeah. Uh, Swybell. Yeah, it had, it had a, just a great uh, group of writers. But, you know, I, I, it, what I found, and maybe you, you've seen this too, is... Is sketch comedy just doesn't work in prime time, no matter no matter how good it is. I don't know what it is, but people just don't want sketch comedy in prime time. They want sitcoms. I don't know why, but but every good sketch comedy show I've worked on in prime time has just not worked. I don't know. But that was an amazing writing crew, probably the best I ever worked on. Did that job then lead to SNL? Um. Pretty much, yeah. I went back to L.A. and I worked on um, uh, Michael Nesmith's show, and I think a couple other shows, and then Al Franken and Tom Davis took over Saturday Night Live and, and you know, brought me back to, to New York for that. So this was what, the Joe Piscopo, Eddie Murphy years? No, it was... Uh, <clears throat> It was back when Warren Michaels came back and took over the show after the Piscopo oh, okay. Murphy years, yeah, and, and Franken and Davis came to produce, and uh, it was, I think it was labeled sort of a disastrous year where we had, uh, you know, actually we had Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. in his early days, too. That was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and Randy Quaid. I mean, there were some good people. So this was sort of a transitional year. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a tough first year, it was a year we had, Madonna came on, and I think she had the first, did the first show, and, uh, and then, um, I sort of got fired after that, I think. <laughs> what happened? I don't know, I don't know, I just, I, I don't know, they didn't, I guess they, they didn't like me or something. Well, I, I just really just didn't come back. Uh, my friend Jim Downey likes to claim that I was fired. But, <laughs> but uh, it took me, the next year I sort of sat out and came in the last few shows and then and then was back on for several years. So then you cranked out some amazing sketches, including uh, Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer, which is one of my favorite. Now, how did oh, you, good, thanks. Uh, you work with Phil Hartman on that as well as other sketches. What was it like to have him as you, at your disposal uh, as a writer. I mean, the, the talent he had to bring out characters was astonishing. Yeah, he, he was just amazingly good. And, I mean, you could go... He was just calm, and you could go between dress and air, and he'd be in the makeup room, and I would go, oh, change this line to this, change this line to this, you know, and blah, blah, blah. He goes, yep, got it. You know, he was just so cool under fire and could do just about anything. I mean... You know, some writers wrote for, you know, people like Adam Sandler who had a, had a definite character, and they would tune into that character, but Phil could just do anything so you could write anything for him. I also remember the Tarzan, Tonto, and Frankenstein sketch. Did you write that one? Yeah, I wrote that with, uh, with Jim Downey. Uh, we, we, we did several version, incarnations of that. That's the uh, only sketch I ever saw Phil Hartman break up. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was fun. Uh, uh, we, I think we started it as a talk show, 
uh, you know, where people just, they were just talking in monosyllables and stuff, you know, but, uh, and then it branched out into, I think we did a, a uh, soap opera version, and Mel Gibson played Frankenstein's brother on one, which was really good, and, and he was just, like, very loquacious, which was, mm-hmm. which was funny, you know, so, uh, anyway. He's the anti-Semitic brother. How is Madonna to work with? There is a show I never see on repeats. They just never show that Madonna episode. I don't really remember. I probably didn't get anything on, which is why I don't remember anything. I don't remember, like, talking with her or working with her. Uh, I think maybe, oh, I think uh, maybe Don Novello and I wrote a film piece about her getting married. Oh, Don Don Novello is a writer that's never not mentioned as much as he should be, but he wrote one of my all-time favorites, The Scotch Boutique. Oh God! Wasn't that incredible? Oh it's my just, God! Yeah. It just took a lot of nerve to stay with that. I'll you know, say. it was so you know. quiet, and and they kept doing that sketch. I mean, <laughs> for those who don't know it, the, the there's a dream of the owner of a small store in a failing mall to sell scotch tape. And he only stayed in business because he sold the scotch tape to hold up to going out of business signs to the other stores. <laughs> yeah, and all the other stores were failing, and, and the scotch tape store was doing well. Yeah. yeah, Don Novello is just a brilliant writer, and he's written a bunch of uh, print pieces, too, that I, I wish they'd collect them together because um, they're really good. I mean, besides uh, the Laszlo letters, and, but just he used to write freelance to magazines and some really good stuff. Really, I, I didn't know that. What what is yeah. it that he wrote? These were um, shouts and murmur type pieces. Yeah, uh huh. And uh, he and I used to write for back um, freelance to We Magazine, a wow. girly magazine back back in the day when it was owned by Playboy. And he did a lot of funny pieces for them and some other magazines, I think Omni and stuff. But yeah, I, I wish they would collect his pieces because they were really good. Yeah, he's not out there enough. I think he's such a genius. Um, he, but he's sort of under the radar he is he is he doesn't um, he doesn't publicize himself a lot but but he's just some great stuff i mean it's just i don't know find the find the pokes in the pizza i mean i don't know (laughs) so good and the last little letters was really the first of its type before jerry seinfeld got involved with that sort of thing the letters from a nut and all that sort but those last little letters like writing to nixon and or writing to to mcdonald's it was just incredibly funny incredible Now, happy f- the Happy Fun Ball commercial parody is one of those things that I saw and just blew my mind. It was so influential, and to this day, that format is used by comedy writers. It's just a short, dry setup, and then a tremendously long list of repercussions. <laughs> what, how did that? Yeah. Do you remember the, the the initial thought behind the Happy Fun Ball idea? Um, I, I just remember it occurred to me over the summer, and I I don't know how or why it happened but just a lot of disclaimers made me laugh and uh, and speaking of Steve Martin and I writing a similar piece he wrote a similar piece uh, I think uh, it was called uh, Side Effects I think uh, which is about just warnings on on a, a drug or something about the side effects but uh, yeah I'm not, I'm not you know you're never really sure how an idea comes to you but it did well that and, side effects piece was for New Yorker 
Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it that reminded me of Happy Fun Ball, where it's just such simplicity, and then the world behind it just crashes in on itself. <laughs> and the Happy Fun Ball was just a small little red ball, plastic ball that was used by kids, but the, right. the warnings went on for <laughs> how yeah. long did they go on? Do not, do not taunt Happy Fun Ball. <laughs> <laughs> So you have a new Deep Thoughts book out. Um, I do. Uh, Who is putting it out? Who's the publisher? I am the publisher. Uh, It's published by Tunsis Productions Incorporated. That sounds right. Yeah, I'm I'm the publisher, and the only way you can find it is on my website, which is uh, deepthoughtsbyjackhandy.com. What I love about it is just the character is a total lunatic, and yet he's so dry and soft-spoken. Did you? Is this a character that that you write? I hope. Yeah, I hope it's a character, (laughs) not me, (laughs) because he is sort of insane. Uh, Yeah, it's a guy who who's very uh, sort of yeah off insane, but thinks he's normal and like tries to get you agree that he. Yeah, don't we all think that this blah blah that? Uh, No, you know. Uh, But uh, yeah, it's it's. It's, I guess it's sort of like the Steve Martin character, only Mike. I think he's darker, you know, it's more more vicious. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. I mean, some of the stuff, I was looking through, actually, this is a fuzzy narrator one, but this is one of my favorites. Of all my imaginary friends, I don't think there was one that I didn't end up having to kill. <laughs> it's the having to kill part of that. There was no choice. I'm sorry I had to kill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's I, it, it's hard to keep from going to the dark side, you know. My my wife always tries to tell me, you know, like no, that's too dark, you know. But that's <laughs> really? that's your instinct. To, oh, yeah. yeah, I know, I know. I I, I like the dark humor too. Uh, harkens back to the old National Lampoon days. Yeah. Slash and burn. You don't see that anymore. That Michael no. stuff. No. no, it's all kind of. Most humor now is just sort of topical, you know, and it's just not evergreen, you know, as they say. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, your your deep thoughts, they they remain as fresh as they did 30 years ago. I mean, this isn't, you're not writing about uh, Reagan or George W. Bush, H.W. Bush or any of that. This is stuff that's just character-based that just remains as fresh as it was years ago. Well, I hope so, you know, and that's why you like reading, you know, Benchley and and Thurber and things like that is, you know, they they didn't really write about, you know, the election of 1920, you know, uh, which is gone, you know. I mean, I'm sure there was some great satire about the election of 1920 if that was an election year, but, but you know, I, I just prefer more of the... the introspective kind of stuff. I don't know. I do, too. I remember coming across an Art Buckwald book in the library where I grew up, and it was just, it took place 10 years previous, about the Nixon years, and I might as well have been reading something in ancient Sumeron. I mean, it was just like, (laughs) no connection. But then I would read Thurber or even like, uh, you know, a Greek, a Roman or Greek comedy writer, Aristophanes, and it was just, because it was character-based, it just remained so funny and so fresh. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the stuff now is just topical or you know political, and it just I don't know. It, not many people can do j- 
Jim Downey can do political stuff good, but a lot of it is just the first step you think of, you know, is that's what they do, you know, rather than going to the second or third step, you know. That's right. So, um, and that's probably the, the problem, too, running for TV, is that you're forced in, into a position where you have to write material that is just going to go bad, that won't be evergreen. Yeah, yeah, I tried to avoid that on Saturday Night Live, um, which is why, probably why most of my sketches were in the last five minutes of the show. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, people, and actors love to do impressions, too, so, you know, that's a factor, like, they would, they like to get out and, and impersonate a famous person, and so you're fighting that. Uh, so it, it, it's, hard, it's hard to do the evergreen stuff. You know, when I was looking over in, for, in doing this interview, I was going over some old deep thoughts, and it's, what struck me was how close to the Internet humor you see now in tweets. I mean, th these were tweets 30 years before tweets existed. Yeah, somebody said that I invented tweets. But I think you did. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, comedically, you invented tweets. I hope there's some money involved in that somewhere. <laughs> but. So. so you're a contributor to New Yorker. Let's talk about a lot of people, even though they don't want to write full time for print, you know, if they're comedy writers, they want to get something in the New Yorker. How hard was it for you to get your first piece in, and how hard is it still for you? What is the success rate or failure rate for you still to this day? Well, when I first started, it was very, uh, you know, it was, it was difficult. I mean, almost all my stuff was shot down. And uh, um, finally, uh, Dan Miniker, who used to be an editor there, I don't know if he still is or not, but uh, he's not, uh, said, said, you know, he, he, liked, he got in touch with me and he said, I like your stuff and here's what you do, you know, write a piece where you repeat a phrase and, and that'll get in. And sure enough, I did. You know, I wrote a piece called Stunned mm -hmm. and it got in in 1987. And then after that, you know, um, uh, you know, I was, then I wrote like five pieces and I, I just thought I'll send all five of these and maybe one will get in, you know, and my, my champion at the New Yorker, Susan Morrison kind of said, no, we'll take all five. So it was like, oh. I was kind of like off and running, uh, then, um, then, you know, uh, and they accept more of my stuff now, but it, it, it makes it harder in a way because you go, uh, are you just accepting it because I have a history there, or <laughs> or do you really like it? You know, yeah. so well, that's a you problem have, we should all have. I mean, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, how do you know whether a piece works or not? Do you give it to your wife? Do you give it to friends? Yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes I I I have test uh, jokes out on peop on people, you know, and and um, it, it's hard to know. Yeah, uh, but usually, and you, you probably know this too. So you know, if you if you hit a sweet spot on a on a on a piece, it's easy. I mean, if you if it has a good premise, it's much easier to write than sort of a collection of jokes, which is hard because you gotta just write a million jokes and then pick out the best ones and hope they fit the theme. But uh, if you have a good, strong premise, um, it's much easier. Um, like when I wrote um, 
Uh, what I'd say to the Martians, it's like, is this, you know, it's a clean premise. It's like just a vicious guy uh, taunting the Martians. So, you know, it's easier if you have, if you have that kind of a premise. Yeah, just a guy who's a dick to the Martians. I love that. <laughs> what a dick. <laughs> but you still do get rejected, right? Uh, occasionally, yeah, yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, there's just not many places anymore to send stuff. I mean, you know, and, and they've gotten more and more restrictive about the rights they want. It used to be back, you know, when I first started writing, you know, you just sold first serial rights or one-time rights, and now a lot of times they want all rights or something, you know. It's, I know, yeah. And for, for, the, for the same money. <laughs> Yeah. Now, here's a subject you may not want to talk about. I can always edit it out. I bring it up because I suffer from it very badly. And I was thinking about actually writing a book based on this because most comedy writers that I've interviewed also suffer from it, and that is OCD. Oh, that, well, that's you should write a book about that. And I have actually considered uh, I have that, and a lot of comedy writers have that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a major factor in being a comedy writer. Uh, it's just Tell me why. It's just your brain is ordered differently. Uh, you know, OCD is... Uh, do you have that? I have it very bad. I've had it since I was 11. That's about when it starts, I think. Um, um, but, I, you know, it, it, supposedly it's... It's not like something you can cure. It's, it's, it's the way your brain is formed. I find it fascinating because you're right, that it, it wires your brain in a certain way that makes it so that yeah. you think in a comedic... Now, that's not to say there aren't plumbers or surgeons out there with OCD, but I do right. think that the suffering one goes through as a kid uh, wires your brain in a certain way uh, to help make writing comedy easier. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, in a way, I feel like I'm fortunate to have it because there are so many... Um, there's so many comedy writers that have it. I mean, geez, a ton of them and comedians. So I think it must have something to do with it. Uh, it's an interesting topic. Yeah. Well, do you, what are your, are you willing to talk about this when it, when it hit sure. you and, and what your feeling was? Because when it hit me, I felt very alone. I didn't know what it was. I thought I was going crazy. This was before, way before anyone knew what it was. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's like feelings of guilt and, uh, um, you know, counting things and, and cleanliness and, um, yeah, I take, I take Cymbalta to kind of stabilize myself, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it can be debil debilitating, but, uh, I always felt like, too, in a way, it's sort of ironic that so many comedy writers have it that I guess it's a physical help. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, and I do think, too, that it's a very powerful thing, that it's a, it's a, it's a system of energy, and that if you can tap into it in a positive way, where I used to feel guilty for not doing something every day, whether it was you know exercise or this or that, but if you can tap into that and feel guilty for not writing every day, you know your life mm -hmm. will be still miserable, but it's a positive route to take, and that you will produce, and you can sort of hone it and funnel it into something more positive. Yeah, yeah, the compulsion, and also I just think for some reason it makes you think of jokes too. I don't know why. Um, 
I think it's a great, you know, medical um, area of study because I think it's not just because it's, you know, I've known people, two comedy writers that are, you know, like um, manic depressive too, but that seems less common than OCD. I don't know why. How many friends uh, of yours who write comedy have OCD, would you say? A lot. Uh, uh, I probably shouldn't name any names, no. but, 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 uh, but yeah, a lot, and a lot of famous people. Uh, I mean, I, I think Steve Martin has talked about it, you know. Uh, uh, but there's there's a lot of famous people that, that have it, and I don't I don't know. It's an interesting. It's almost like a mechanical thing that your brain has sort of a little twisted wiring that uh, makes you write jokes. So right, <laughs> that you think differently than other people who are thinking differently. Right. Yeah. And, and there's a downside of it too, which is you know the compulsion and to do things and count yeah. count count things and you know wash your hands and. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jack, I'm a huge fan of your work and have been for years. I can't oh well, thank you very much. New book. I'm going to really spread the good word. I'm going to send people a freebie with every book they order. Yeah. I've got some Deep Thoughts merchandise that I need to get rid of. Like a a bear cozy or something? (laughs) It's like, you know, greeting cards, uh, fridge magnets, uh, you know, bookmarks, that kind of stuff. So so you'll get a a free free surprise if you order. And do you have any projects that you're working on, any print projects or otherwise that we can look forward to down the road? Well, by the time this comes out, I'll have a piece in the New Yorker called "Don't Blame Yourself," uh, and I'm I'm just sort of uh, found floundering right now about what what my next book will be. People people seem to either love or hate the stench of Honolulu. But oh God, please don't tell me. Someone told you they hated that book? Oh yeah, you check check out Amazon. It's like oh God, it's there's no plot. I just you know. Uh, I finally realized that, 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 and you probably have found this too, that, that uh, uh, most people, oh, I don't want to say most people, but a lot of people do not have a sense of humor. No, and, they think and, they do. Oh, yeah, they think they do. But it's like if you tell them a, a, a joke, it's kind of like you're speaking French to them, and, and they go, why, why are you speaking French to me? Stop that. <laughs> So, yeah, some people hated uh, Stinch of Honolulu, but uh, some people really loved it, too, so I'm sort of tempted to go back to that. But does that bother you, that some people put up negative reviews on Amazon? This is a book that is a beloved by myself and all of my friends. I mean, this is the funniest book of the last decade. We love this book. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, it does. I mean, you know, uh, what was it? I think Carol Burnett said... Uh, she didn't read reviews because uh, you, may, you may have heard this quote, but she said, "He said the bad ones hurt too much, and the, and the good ones are never good enough." <laughs> but yeah, it, it kind of stings when people go, "Oh, this sucks." Uh, but uh, it it's selling pretty well, so I have to think people vote with their pocketbooks. I guess. Please do another book. Don't listen to those people, please. Okay. Okay. Would you like one like that? I like stench. Like, I would love it. I, you know, the whole point of I mean, who needs a plot, quite frankly, and there was a plot. This isn't an episode of Hawaii Five O, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My friend George Meyer used to say, you know, talking about the emphasis on story, and he 
would go like, uh, he would say, what are we children that we need to be told stories? <laughs> well, that's just it. And one of the advantages of not writing for a Hollywood executive is that we can, you can do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm leaning towards something like that, um, and hopefully I'll, um, you know, have the energy to do it. All right, well, maybe I'll check in when that book comes out eventually. Well, thanks so much, Mike. Don't forget to order Jack's book from deepthoughtsbyjackhandy.com. Next up, we get to hear from Danny McBride and Walton Goggins of HBO's Vice Principals. Season 2 is now available on HBO, so check it out. Ian Goldstein and myself had the privilege of meeting these two guys at the HBO headquarters in Manhattan. And I want to say that a lot of times interviews can happen so quickly that they kind of seem like a blur. But not this one. Both Danny and Walton gave calculated and well-thought-out responses that really show how much they care for their craft. Here, take a listen. So yeah, this interview was conducted by Ian Goldstein, so you're going to hear his voice throughout. Ian started the chat by bringing up the fact that originally HBO's Vice Principals was supposed to be a five-hour movie. He then asked when they decided to turn it into a TV show. Well, you know, I originally wrote the screenplay with Jody back in uh, 2006. We uh, we locked up for, I had this idea about just this power struggle at a high school where the students had no idea, but behind closed doors, there was like some epic struggle with the administrators. And that was the kernel of the idea. And Jody came to Virginia where I was living at the time. We locked up for a week and we spit the screenplay out in a week. And, uh, you know, we really, we love, what we loved about the script was we loved these characters. We loved Lee Russell, we loved Neil Gamby, we liked Dr. Brown, but uh, somewhere around the middle of the script to the end, it just, we, we couldn't crack it. We couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. And so it became this project that we just put on the shelf and every year I would kind of like, you know, look back at it, try to figure out like, what is it? What's it missing? What does it need? And, uh, and when we are finished with Eastbound, we, uh, I pulled it out again to say, well, maybe I should go back and try to crack Vice Principles. And then it just clicked to me, like, maybe Vice Principles is supposed to be a TV show. Like, maybe that's, maybe it's the length of, of an hour and a half story that's really what's holding this up, you know? And, uh, yeah, so then I just, you know, I pitched that to HBO and I told them that uh, we didn't want it to make it like, uh, maybe it was because we had a script and we already had an idea that it would have a fun, you know, an ending, that we didn't really picture it as a show that would just go on season after season after season, that it was going to have a beginning, middle, and end. And we, uh, we just pitched that to HBO. We wanted to break it up into two parts, like one school year, uh, first semester and second semester. And, uh, yeah, we just began breaking the, the story down that way and fitting it into that sort of model. And that just kind of became the evolution of it. After that, Ian asked how they approached their roles, having little knowledge of what a vice principal's day-to-day life actually is. Walton responded. While I may not uh, know that, that many vice principals, I do know a lot of narcissistic assholes. <laughs> and, uh, and so from none are in this room, right? <laughs> yes, okay, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, you know, the, what these guys wrote was so clearly defined, you know, yeah. it's uh, just kind of uh, turn yourself over to it. And, and I just kind of saw it as soon as I read it. It's like, wow, okay, wow, this could be unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then, you know, you, you just kind of turn yourself over to an imaginary set of circumstances, really. These guys don't go for jokes, you know, they're... they're they're uh, motivated by you know, like the great directors of the 70s, you know, all these guys, Jody and, uh, and, and David and Danny, that's really their big kind of influencers. So, so they're not writing a comedy, you know, they're, they're, they're writing a drama that happens to be funny. And, uh, and, and, and I understand that world. And, uh, and, and everything that they do is grounded and, and, and truthful. And, and so I think, you, you know, 
everybody just kind of approached it that way. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And I, you know, I was a substitute teacher for a little bit, so I had experience being in a school. And uh, you know, then I then I actually just went and I interviewed like a few different vice principals and principals just to kind of get an idea of what the deal was there. But you know, I think ultimately, if you're uh, if it's based on these characters and, and like if the characters are, you know, if they're relatable, then their jobs just tend to be the background of which it happens in. You know, so I don't think ultimately we didn't have a big understanding of baseball, but I think ultimately Kenny Powers was a character that you could identify with. Even if he wasn't a baseball player, he could have been a country music singer, or he could have been, uh, you know, a child performer. I mean, you know, so it's like I think it's about ultimately finding characters that you can have a hook into them that is sort of universal, and it doesn't have to. And you just use their profession then as your set. You know, that's your decoration. That's the world that you pull your stories from. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be in there. You know, this is this easily could be some power struggle between two warring brothers in like in a fucking Shakespeare play, I think. And you know, but then we, we just move it and put it into a public school and, and it gives you a whole another set of dynamics. Next, Ian asked if it's easier to find the comedy in roles that aren't specifically comedies. If you're just kind of truthful to, to the absurdity uh, of the situations and, and you play that honestly. Well, you'll you'll be sh- you'll go through a, a plethora of, of emotions, you know. But it, it's it'll be funny because it's fucking funny, and it's so absurd, and it'll be serious because it's serious. This is a very you know somebody's got a gun to your head, and uh, and I think you know that kind of uh, applies to, uh, to to what to what these guys. For, for me, that's that's the only thing I kind of look for really in, in anything that I that I approach is. Uh, is to be as truthful to the story as possible and to not cast myself as the, the center of attention. You know what I mean? To not make it about me. I'm there in the service of the, the writer and the, uh, the director. And, uh, as, and, and I try to, uh, to understand the story uh, on, on the same level that the, the writer understands the story. And I feel like that's, that's, my, that's my job. And, and, and that's how I can be an effective tool for the, for the uh, filmmaker that I'm working with. Have you had experience in the past where you thought like, oh, I see comedy coming out of this scene, but you may have not been able to pursue it as much? You know, uh, you know, weirdly, when I was on Alien, I was wondering what that, what the vibe of that kind of movie would be like. Yeah. You know, what, what's yeah. the vibe on an Alien movie? Is it going to be like, is everyone very quiet? Are they, you know? And it was odd. I mean, it's like you get there, and it's exactly the same vibe as on Vice Principals or anything. It's like you know, ultimately, people are showing up to work and. Um, they're having fun doing what they're doing. They're excited about what they're doing. They're taking it very seriously, but it really like the the tone of the set wasn't dictated uh, by the tone of the movie. I guess it was. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. And I'm sure that that's not how everyone is. I'm sure that there are directors who want that, you know. But Ridley, I thought was uh, he didn't make it. You know, it wasn't like you felt like oh I can't I can't like be light here because that will you know you just kind of leave it up to him to sort of guide you and what works and what doesn't work and uh, not really censor yourself and kind of just do what you feel like seems true and then let him guide you if it's bumping against the bigger picture. Ian addressed the fact that all creators have to face rejection over and over again and he wanted to know how they dealt with it early on in their careers. You know, it was a lot, for me, I was like, I wasn't really, when I was in LA, I wasn't, I, I don't know if I would have made it if I had come out to LA with the hopes of being an actor because it's just so difficult. You know, it's so difficult to, to really cut through and to find your mark. You really have to find people who believe in you and you gotta be used to being able to be rejected every single day. And uh, 
so I was out there trying to be a writer and uh, and trying to direct and and for me it was sort of like I just had faith that I knew what I was doing that I'd be able to do it and it was about trying to find the time to be able to do it and like when I had moved to LA and I have like a rent that's more expensive than anything I had imagined before and I have the bills and all this I just felt myself having to work all the time and then like the thing that I was really in LA for which was to write and to try to make as a screenwriter I would have like three hours at the end of the night and I just spent 12 hours doing something that I didn't give a shit about and so for me I just I felt like I needed to figure out the math of it all that I needed to like move to lot move back to my parents for six months and in that time period I could write something and I wouldn't have to work quite as much or to pay the bills and so it was about just trying to find the balance for me of like how can I do what I'm out here to do without just getting pummeled you know by just the cost of living here and uh yeah, so that was like that was that was the sort of thing I felt like I had to get over was not really rejection, but the ability to like get myself in a position to be able to actually just do what I came out there to do. Were there times you thought you really had something down, like you had a certain role that you wanted to get, and you thought like, oh, I definitely have this, or? Or when you had certain expectations that just kind of collapsed or didn't go the way you thought it would? I think it happens with everything. I mean, every situation you get handed out there, you always imagine that there's the best case scenario and it always happens usually just a little bit below that. It's always just like, you know, you get you get cast in something, you're like, oh, this is going to be the thing that really catapults me. You're like, oh, this is this, this director's like least box office success. Okay, so that's going to send us back to the drawing board. It's like, you know, so I think you're always thinking, you know, I think that it's always about your expectations and then the reality of it, you know, and I think ultimately you just have to not be discouraged by that stuff. You have to just like what you're doing enough that that stuff doesn't, you're not constantly at, in a state of like, am I going to keep doing this or not doing this? And just know that doing it is going to require you to be rejected and it will require things to not always work out the way you want them to. You feel like, you feel like liking something enough should like over, can overpower yeah. rejection. You, you'll be, you'll, you're fucked if every single thing that happens, you're trying to use that as the deciding factor of whether you should keep doing it or not, you know, because you'll definitely hand <coughs> it moments and opportunities that if that's what you're using as your benchmark, you'll, you know, that there will be moments that feel like you're lost or it's not going to work out, you know, so I think you have to just get yourself in a mind space that you're not looking for those opportunities to decide your passion for it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, you know, certainly. I mean, those. I mean, who who doesn't have doubt? Kind of, kind of in that way. I, I think. I think, for me, once I, once I stopped kind of comparing myself to the people around me and uh, and and my my worth, value as a as an as an artist or even just as a person in the world. I became much happier, to be quite honest with you, and, and I learned very early on that that this notion to, to go with what you said, which you so articulate what you just said, the uh, the idea that there is a silver bullet that gets you to this place. I don't even know what that fucking place is, to be quite honest with you. I, I think that most careers, if that's what you want to call it, most uh, um, satiated artists. Uh, build their opportunities over a very long period of time you know and that might be when no one's looking and then you get the job and then all of a sudden a lot of people are looking at you uh, or it might be in front of people and it like was my experience to where you know you go from number 12 on the call sheet to number 9 to number 8 back down to number 11 before you get to you know number 2 or, or number 1 in some you know in some instances and uh and and I and I think again, it's like to look to look at it like Danny said as this is this is my life, this is the, the road that I'm that I'm that I'm walking, and um, 
and, and to be happy along, along the way. Ian followed up by asking if they believed in the idea of always hustling for work. I actually don't. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, my version of making it, my litmus test is very different than it is for other people. I, I, I could stop tomorrow and, and, and be okay. You know, I've set my life up in a way that I can, I, I've lived, I can live without and I can, and I'm, I'm happy. You know, life for, for me is okay, but I am, um, I don't, I don't have to be in a 50 million, the lead of a hundred million dollar movie in order for me to, 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 uh, to be successful in my own eyes. It's just continually kind of challenging myself, I think. You know, getting, getting those, those opportunities. And, and that doesn't just kind of come as, as an actor, man. I mean, yeah, it comes from traveling, you know, for me. It comes from being a father. And so, so uh, yeah, I, I think people will really have to be very, very careful about setting up these expectations and looking to other people to get the answer that they need in order to go another day. Do, do you know what I mean by that? It's like, this is the fucking day, man. You know, it doesn't get any better and it doesn't get any worse. It's just how you're looking at it. Couldn't agree more myself. Boom. Yeah. That's that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, I agree. It's like, I don't think it is about making or not making it. It is about, uh, it's just about having an interest in what you do. Like, you know, I know as a, you know, with each of these shows, with Eastbound or with VPs, it's like you create something, you find the dynamic, you find characters that work, you, you, you figure out stuff. And then for me, it's always just a matter of like, okay, next time I want to try something where I avoid that pitfall or I try this. It's just a matter of just, trying something different you know and in, in that regards I feel like that fire doesn't really go out for me I've, I'm always you know I don't like finish something and think okay I've done it uh, that's the thing that like defines me it's always like okay on the next one I'm gonna do it like this and I won't do that and I'll do you know so it's I guess with each project for me as a writer it, it just is about what you learn from that project to apply to the next thing you're gonna do next he asked if it's hard to work on your current project when you have a movie you filmed years ago hitting the theaters that week. You know what's funny? It's like a movie coming out is the most anticlimactic thing that can ever happen. It really is. Because like you work on something and you assume that there's going to be this moment where like everybody turns to you and it's like, wonderful job. You know what I mean? Like every, you know, and that's just not really how it goes. Like you start realizing like, oh, like the climax for me as an artist is when we make it and when it's done. And then you hope that people go see it. You hope that people like it and you hope it's something that, you know, that you know people appreciate but ultimately if you're like kind of like waiting on like the 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 the, uh waiting on the positive feedback or something that that just doesn't really happen in a way that like really i think quenches anything you know yeah you're not yeah it's like like this outside kind of validation for your for your worth for your Mm -hmm. self-worth you know it's that's futile yeah and then if you are waiting for that then it's just like you know like pineapple express comes out and you're thinking oh man this is you know i've been living with this for a year now i can't wait for people to see it and then it comes out and then the next weekend another movie comes out and everyone's talking about that so it's like it really uh you know, it really has to be about like, I think the real enjoyment comes from just doing it, you know, from being able there to do it. And then you just cross your fingers and hope that uh, and you can do it again. You get to do it again. Yeah. And finally, Ian wanted to know who is an actor or a creator supposed to be doing all of this for? Is it for themselves or is it genuinely for the audience? <laughs> I think I think everybody kind of, you know, you, you secretly want that attention or that affection from 
you know, from somebody saying, you know, it was a good job or this, you know, you did, you did good. And, and, and in our profession, it's like from a director, right? And or needing to kind of please people and kind of be friends with people. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I, I had that and it just caused me so much pain early on, like doing a take and just like looking and just like, is that motherfucker going to walk over here and tell me I did a good job or not, you know, or not. And then, and then I kind of got to the place and it was just never, it never, it never satiated me. It was like, like a bottomless pit. And then I finally, you know, pretty early on, man, like I, I, I got to the place where it was just like, man, fuck that. I'm fucking, this is about, and not just about me, this is just about this story. I don't care whether you come up to me, I don't care whether you don't come up to me, I don't care if you say something positive, I don't care if you say something negative. I'm enjoying what I do, and I'm gonna get it right, and I'm gonna get it wrong, and I'm gonna, I don't, I'm not gonna be good or, or, bad, or bad, because I don't believe in being good or bad. Like, maybe I don't understand this part of the story, but but you can bet I'll understand. If I don't understand this part of the story now, I'll understand another part of the story later. I mean, it is kind of what it what it is, you know. And, and I, uh, I think once we start stop seeking approval, like in our life, like on a moment to moment basis, then then you would you would find a lot happier people in in the in this world of ours. Mm-hmm. You know. Anyway, I need to take one little. I'm gonna check my Instagram real quick. That's it for this episode of Doing It with Mike Sachs. Join us next time where I'll be recording the show live with the original members of the Flying Wellindas. Thanks to Jack Handy, Danny McBride, and Walton Goggins for being guests on today's show. Thanks to Ian Goldstein for conducting another great interview and to Sam Peach for our theme music. Last episode, I forgot to thank Max Yoder for co-creating the podcast quiz segment. So thanks, Max. I hope Kansas is treating you well. Learn more about Mike Sachs over at MikeSachs.com and make sure to buy a copy of Stinker Let's Loose or any of his other great books. You can find me, Rob Schulte, on Twitter at Rob K. Schulte. That's S-C-H-U-L-T-E. And if you want to hear more from me, I'm currently putting out the second season of my famous horror movie show, Pumpkin Spice Podcast. Check it out. It's a seasonal artisanal treat for your ears. So until next time, you know what to do. Keep your feet on the ground and keep doing it. You can find a spot like that and dig a decent product, that's where the paycheck's at.